Yeah, I've been invited to uh, kick the series of presentations off and I'm going to give a, a broad historical background to the 1912 Act and there'll be the, uh, many people here better placed I think to go into the intricacies of that legislation and what, how it shaped the, uh, the public service in the 20th century in New Zealand so I'm going to sketch in some of the historical um, considerations which led towards the Act, the um, political context and the changes that were already to some extent taking place in the civil service of the 19th century. And I've called it patronage and scientific bureaucratic rationalism. At the last minute I added in bureaucratic and I don't know quite why I'm, I'd forgotten that key uh, term um, which uh, is I guess redolent of the public service. And I should have included that, so I apologise. But um, what I'm, I'm trying to um, put that particular piece of legislation in, into this um, broader context, uh, various philosophies that uh, the um, author of the legislation, Alexander Herdman, re reform minister, um, came across and uh, influenced him. Anyway, first of all, um, thanks to IPANS and to MCH for inviting me to speak to you today. And I think what we're doing today, and if you um, hang around long enough for Peter Hughes' uh, presentation in several weeks' time, um, we are looking backwards in order to look forwards. And I took a quick look, because I'm not really an expert in the area of public administration, I took a quick look at the, uh, the book, recent book, Future State, uh, just to get maybe an inkling of um, what current debates are about. And I think it is an appropriate moment to review this most fundamental framework for the public service at a time of great change that is now proceeding apace in Wellington with the merging of departments and of back office functions and so on, things that you are undoubtedly very familiar with. In terms of my own personal credentials, I guess, I came across a lot of the sorts of issues which were grappled with in the 1912 legislation when I did a history of the Labour Department nearly 20 years ago. And that did stimulate my interest in the general development of the public service in the 1890s, which was the period in which the Labour Department was formed. And as we can say, as of uh, July this year, has now disappeared. Uh, one of those changes that is current. This department was particularly under the microscope for the extent of patronage that was being wielded by the Liberals as a political weapon. Most people, I think, have come across at one time or another, although it's very hard to sort of pin it down in terms of historians' references, the apocryphal story of King Dick, Richard John Seddon, and a West Coaster who arrived in Wellington looking for a job. When this particular West Coaster was sent seeking his billet, as the term had it in the day, in the Labour Department, and he arrived in the office of the first head of department, Edward Tregear. Tregear concluded that the man was, in fact, illiterate, and so he wrote a note to Seddon saying that this guy could neither read nor write. Seddon responded, learn him. <laughs> and that, I think, tells you quite a lot about Seddon and about the way that the civil service, I never know whether to talk about the public service or the civil service at that time, I think sort of on a cusp. In the 19th century one is perhaps comfortable in referring to the civil service, but I don't quite know when it became the public service. Anyway, someone else can address that issue. 
Anyway, the, the Seddon's personality is, is evident, I think, in that apocryphal story. And uh, he had very strong links with the West Coast. And many people traipsed through into Wellington looking for government billets. And this was one particular person. Obviously, Tregear had qualms. But the Labor Department did, in fact, um, appoint a lot of people who were appointed not because they um, had appropriate qualifications in, in public service terms, but because they had practical experience of workplaces and um, dealing with uh, employment issues and dealing with hazards of machinery and so on. I'd like to mention now um, Alan Henderson's excellent book, which I think underpins a lot of the discussions that we might have about the history of the public service. The book called Quest for Efficiency which has very useful information on the origins of the Act in 1912. And maybe it hasn't been fully appreciated. Um, it was a rather quiet little book launch I remember going to in 1990 in, to the SSC building in Molesworth Street. And, um, but that book, I think, stands as quite a landmark and should be acknowledged. Okay. I'd like first just to make some comments about the nature of bureaucracy. The emergence of a modern public service in New Zealand was part of wider moves towards the bureaucratisation of government. And here we are talking about the concept of bureaucracy, which is largely founded on the work of Max Weber, a German sociologist. Bureaucracy provided a so-called rational form of organisation governed by rules and governed by a legal framework in which there was a close relationship between the means used and the ends to be served. At the turn of the 20th century, which was the time that Max Weber was writing, bureaucratisation was part of the move towards greater democracy by severing the strong relationships of patronage between ministers and their departments. Now, another century on perhaps, we can see how to some extent, bureaucracy can be seen as an obstacle to greater democracy, and I'll touch on this a bit more as we go along. Um, the activities of the Ombudsman, for example, already in existence for 50 years, and the Official Information Act since the early 1980s are two examples of attempts to overcome the obstacles of the bureaucracy. Now, bureaucracy goes right back, if you like, at least in, the, uh, in countries which are subjected to influence from Britain, to the way that Thomas Cromwell wielded power in the 1530s under Henry VIII. The beginnings of a separation of government administration from the royal household, wielded through the weapon of Cromwell's personal patronage, a form of patronage which was quite fascinating I think, to read about, but was still founded on despotic personal power and the capacity to send recalcitrants to the Tower of London and the scaffold, a far cry from what one might call gardening leave or golden handshakes that we <laughs> see today. And some of you might possibly have come across Hilary Mantel's uh, semi-biographical novel of Thomas Cromwell, Wolf Hall which is written in a third person, which I think is very indicative of the whole philosophy of bureaucracy, as a sense of objectivity and dispassionate administration. 
And I suspect that she actually uses that strategy as a method of conveying this particular point about the person of Thomas Cromwell. I just mentioned that. Okay, so what did Weber see bureaucracy as entailing? And I think here you'll, you'll recognise very familiar attributes of the sorts of things that the Act of 1912 was trying to achieve and the way that the public service developed in the 20th century. Firstly, the organisation of official functions bound by rules. Secondly, divided into spheres of competence. And thirdly, qualified administrative staff working separately from the means of administration. The office, as a sort of subjunct to that, the office was completely separate, separated from the person. The, the personal interests did not come into it. One did not use one's office as a way of making money. There were no, no farming out of prerogatives or anything like that. And then, um, fourthly, hierarchical organisation of functions. And then, fifthly, recruitment by competitive exams, qualifications and free selection of officers. Finally, and sixthly, regular remuneration in the form of graded fixed salaries, the concept of a career and promotion by objective criteria. Now I think all of those six characteristics should be reasonably familiar to people working in the 20th century public service here. Now I want to turn to 19th century New Zealand and um, at this time, through much of the 19th century, a strong bureaucratic form of employment in the civil service was resisted by the politicians. Patronage existed, although it's quite hard to actually trace its uh, detailed personal um, existence in many cases, but there's no doubt that it was an accepted form of uh, appointment and employment. It existed hand in hand with what I would term patrician government by the political elite, an elite drawn from the class of runholders, merchants and lawyers in the main who were re well represented in Parliament. Now New Zealand did not adopt a detailed classification system for its civil service and appointments continued to be made through the 19th century by ministerial discretion even if examinations were introduced as a method of entry. I think one thing we have to bear in mind at this time, and this is part of my argument, that the civil service in the early days was an extremely small entity indeed. And in 1865, when Parliament came to Wellington, you could dispatch the entire civil service in the cabins of one ship down from Auckland to Wellington, and it would arrive in toto in Wellington, and then be housed in those very small uh, buildings up on the hill there, now occupied by Parliament, in uh, what would have amounted to half a dozen offices. We can count them virtually on the fingers of one hand at that time. And we need to remember that. And my, what my belief is that people weren't so much concerned about the way that corruption or patronage might work its way through the civil servants, but they were, they were much more concerned about how it might operate directly on the politicians. The sorry, Disqualification Act 1870 was one early attempt to um, control any um, allegations of patronage. It excluded from political office paid public office holders and contractors for government work. 
And um, I think when we get into the 1870s and the emergence of Julius Vogel, the kind of issues which were emerging at that time, which were very much associated with public works, um, became really important to politics and were often at the centre of charges of corruption. With Vogel arriving on the scene in the late 1860s in New Zealand politics, he represented a new breed of harder-nosed and more aggressive and entrepreneurial politicians. And this, as I'm suggesting, was in combination with the heightened importance of public works and the financing of public works. This raised new threats in the minds of those who had relied on what one might call the previous self-restraining moral purity of patrician politicians. It had its own limits, as we all mentioned, but this was definitely a change in the political environment. The roads and bridges politicians became increasingly important. Uh, here we have Sir John Hall dangling the bait of public works to the piranha of uh, MPs who are attempting to get what they could for their particular local areas. These sorts of politicians, the so-called roads and bridges politicians, became increasingly, increasingly important at a national level with the abolition of the provinces from the mid-1870s. Lobbying for public works was a constant feature. One man's corruption was another's honoured promise in the never-ending never scramble for public works. After Vogel's bonanza of the 1870s with massive uh, railway expansion and other public works, the country descended into depression. And this fed charges of corruption in hard times. We had uh, various allegations of, um, in relation to the um, sharp, if not corrupt, practices in the distribution of land, run holders who would uh, engage in practices such as spotting and gridironing their runs which they held on lease to maintain their hold over that land. We also had accusations as to the practices of Auckland businessmen who were closely associated with Parliament, Thomas Russell and Frederick Whitaker, who controlled the BNZ. Those two uh, were involved in the sale of the Piaco Swamp, which was a cause celebre of the day, uh, and involved possibly corrupt practices. There were issues associated with the development of the railways and the association of land companies over which, uh, whose land the railways would or would not pass. And then, as this cartoon suggests, we have here Sir George Grey, Prime Minister in the late 1870s, and his Minister of Public Works, MacAndrew, who are dispensing public, various public works, including the, um, one of the uh, celebrated issues of the day, the Thames Railway, which um, came under the microscope for corrupt practices. Okay, so this is some of the flavour of the time, um, the extent of corruption, I guess, associated with the... Um, decay of moral purity amongst politicians. There was a commission on the civil service in 1880, headed, um, oddly enough, by one R. Douglas, which um, urged retrenchment, retrenchment but seemed happy enough with ministerial patronage. 
even if uh, the Commission was appalled by the um, example of one of the two Commissioners of Railways uh, being um, an owner of a firm to whom contracts have been given. The 1886 Civil Service Reform Act introduced competitive exams, but patronage remained prevalent, and in particular because an 1887 amendment of that piece of legislation in 1886 exempted temporary employees from the system and this was a crucial element in allowing ministers to continue to favour individuals for employment from that time on. If you were appointed as a temporary employee in the civil service there were, you were um, not constrained in the same way and the numbers of temporary employees uh, burgeoned from that point on and this was a, a tactic which Seddon himself used quite considerably. Okay, at this point we move um, toward into the liberal period and um, this is a sort of classic cartoon which uh, expresses the concern associated with the expansion of bureaucracy under the liberals, the extent to which uh, the state was weaving a web and meshing um, Zealandia in this web of um, state bureaucracy and regulation. Seddon himself became Minister of Public Works when the Liberals gained power in 1891 and he was um, expert in um, using patronage uh, as I'm suggesting. Um, he was the author of the Cooperative Public Works system which uh, did involve elements of patronage itself in giving uh, small contracts um, to groups of workers uh, to avoid the subcontracting problem um, on public works. Um, and of course, when he um, became Premier in 1893 after John Balance died and he began accumulating portfolios to himself, uh, he virtually became a one-man government and these sorts of issues became more and more salient, the extent of patronage. There was a dramatic growth in the public service over these years as uh, the Liberals created new government departments. And just to quote one or two little figures, uh, compared to 1868, by 1912 the 18 agencies of government had grown to 84, from 18 to 84, grouped within 16 major departments. The 74 types of position within that bureaucracy had now become 314. And the, the generic clerk of those early days uh, where you might just have one or two clerks in the whole department at the time when Parliament came down to Wellington, that generic type of clerk running the, virtually a department on, on their own had become a substantial hierarchy of um, clerical staff maintained by a flow of cadets from below and to the side a new class of experts had been created. At this time also during the Liberal period um, a large number of female cadets had been employed in the um, public service, particularly in the post office. The Conservative opposition began to attack what it saw as corruption in government. However, people like the Webbs who came over here at that time were pretty sceptical of all of this and they said that 
they were referring to the conservative politicians and they said they have revolted against the petty unscrupulousness and vulgarity of Seddon's parliamentary tactics and administrative action, which they dignify by the name of corruption. So they weren't too impressed uh, that there was a lot of corruption going on. The, as Fabian socialists, the Webbs, of course, were very comfortable with the notion of a um, strong state bureaucracy which would be um, fulfilling the will of the people. The reform group, which cohered around Massey in the early years of the turn of the century, recognised that it had to become a formal political party, just as the Liberals had already done. And it began to fasten onto public service reform to attack the government. The Liberal government was not actually embarrassed by its actions. Uh, it was justified as a more effective means of ensuring democratic representation. The close personal employment relationship between a minister and his officials ensured that the government departments would do the government's bidding. And the government's bidding was in the mind of the Liberals an honourable, democratic and popular cause for all New Zealanders. And indeed, this was preferable, that this form of patronage was preferable to the non-democratic domination by a bureaucracy itself. The patronage of pre previous Conservative governments, on the other hand, was very different in the minds of the Liberals, because the state and the civil service that went with it were the instruments of the wealthy class. And here, if I just briefly run through um, some of the, um, the causes of the day amongst the Liberals. One was the, uh, the role of the BNZ and the, the way that it's a, it, it uh, got preference in um, uh, loaning money to government and whether it had account holders who were government ministers. And there was a uh, really uh, and crucial investigation of the BNZ in the 1890s when the Liberals got into power, which um, they sought uh, to get out of the BNZ their records which showed which particular politicians had held accounts with the BNZ. But the, the Liberals themselves came under assault at the same time. And we have several instances of this uh, which are associated with Parliament itself. The appointment of Sergeant at Arms by Seddon, a previous Liberal MP. The appointment of a uh, Liberal MP as Chief Parliamentary Librarian, and the appointment of Hansard reporters, which um, it was argued involved patronage. And then the building of the Parliamentary Library, which was partially built by, under the cooperative uh, contract system, which I mentioned before. Um, allegations were that the employment on this building site was a government billet. And the, the, this is a quote from the Evening Post of the day, to applicants coming forward, the formula was, you are applying for work on the parliamentary buildings? What are your qualifications? Sir, I am a registered elector of the city of Wellington. Pass on to the job then. And this was in the context of a by-election in the Wellington city, uh, a very uh, strenuously contested by-election, actually won by the Conservatives uh, in the end. And then, as this cartoon refers to, there were allegations of... Um, Tammany in New Zealand, corruption associated with the, uh, in particular, with the administration of the liquor laws by the police, and um, a, an incident which backfired in the House when a, uh, a breakaway um, liberal accused Seddon of um, being corrupt in um, making an illegal payment to his son in the army.
that one backfired because it proved to be someone by the name of Richard Sneddon rather than Richard Seddon. So that wasn't so good, but these are the sorts of things. So these are the charges which were being levied around. Okay, now I would like to move on to, to Herdman and the 1912 Act. We're finally getting there. Um, Herdman entered the House in 1902 and he was to become a leading figure in the Reform Party led by Massey. He was the one who piloted the Public Service Act through Parliament. The first bill was introduced in 1904 and he also had a go in 1909 and 1911. He was very strongly influenced by overseas examples of similar legislation and similar forms of public service in particular in Australia and Britain. And he was also much influenced by the American progressive movement. The progressive movement was strongly associated with the idea of scientific management, that a class of experts could uh, administer the state in a neutral fashion uh, using their expertise and um, doing so far more efficiently than the old way which was subject to political influence. I'd hoped to be able to put my finger on some of Herdman's readings in the Parliamentary Library working there as I do. Um, I was a little disappointed, I have to say, but I did find that he, he had um, taken out a book on the, uh, the life of Theodore Roosevelt, who was a very notable progressive and who led reform of the civil service in the USA. I also managed to spot that he took out a huge number of um, statutes for various years for, for Britain, for various Australian states and for the federal government in Australia. And I would imagine that was in preparation for these bills that he was putting into the House. Robert Weber in The Search for Order, which is a sort of classic text analysing progressivism in the United States, said uh, as a sort of summary here, the panacea of the patrician had given way to the administrative tool of the expert with efficiency rather than moral purity its objective, and I think that sort of puts in a bit of a nutshell what I've been trying to say in my presentation here, the, the move that is, was taking place in uh, America under the influence of progressivism, but also here in New Zealand. Scientific management and the way that it was applied to public administration was influenced very strongly by a positivist view of science and research involving the amassing of facts, a very strong emphasis on measuring and um, that administration is a technical issue rather than a political issue. And this led, into the, led to the conclusion that businessmen and experts were far better endowed to be administrators than people who were politically beholden. Herdman, and here I'm talking about Herdman's legislation now, drew upon ex Australian reforms extensively indeed. His 1904 bill drew upon the legislation of New South Wales. Um, he reintroduced the bill in 1909 at a time of retrenchment in the public service. This was based on the 1902 Australian Commonwealth Public Service Act. Just, in 1909, this, this was I think quite important in the scheme of things here, there was um, Quite a, lot, quite a lot of people, um, there were salary cuts and people were losing their jobs, so there was quite a lot of commentary in the newspapers on this. There was another bill in 1911 which was virtually the same as the 1909 bill, and by this time Herdman was quite evidently 
using the language of scientific management. And he said things like, the management of large bodies of public officials is gradually becoming a science. It is like the control of an army and requires men of wide experience, expert knowledge, sound judges of character and great capacity for organisation. The bill, which specifically proscribed patronage, also sought to stamp out the practice which I alluded to of creating temporary positions to give employment to billet-hunting petitioners. The Liberals came back with all the sorts of arguments that they'd been using for quite a long time, that in fact ministerial control was, was actually preferable to bureaucratic control. The latter violated democracy. But by 1911, the Liberals, Liberals were well and truly on the way out. Ward resigned, and a new ministry distanced itself from the, the old Liberals, the Mackenzie ministry. And it appointed, during its very brief existence in 1911 to 1912, a commission to inquire into the civil service, the Hunt Commission, which you probably have heard about. Now, Alan Henderson in his book makes a very strong point that in fact it was Herdman's bills that actually were more important than the Hunt Commission in what actually um, occurred. Uh, it is true that they were both thinking and arguing along the same sorts of lines, but um, he would argue that in fact it was Herdman's legislation which was crucial. In July 1912, reform defeated the government and took charge. Uh, defeated the government in the House. It was not an election. By the time that the Hunt Report was available in September of, of 1912, Herdman's Public Service Bill had already had its first reading. The 1912 bill was almost identical to that of 1911, but it did not stipulate that the commissioners had to be appointed from outside the public service. There are a lot of other details associated with the, the legislation which uh, transpired, which I think probably um, subsequent presenters will talk about. I'll just summarise them very quickly and then come to my conclusion. The 1912 uh, Act created a unified, politically neutral and career public service. This public service was based on entry by competitive exam, promotion on merit, which was qualified by seniority, and had security of tenure and pensions for retirement the ministerial authority to appoint, promote, dismiss and fix salaries was abolished. These powers were placed in the hands of an independent commissioner reporting to Parliament and serving a fixed term free of ministerial supervision. Some did retain doubts as to whether this was the best solution uh, for the public service. And here we have the, the, the dilemma which was still in people's minds, really, I think, at the time that the 1912 Act was passed. On the left, we had the old way for the civil service through political influence. On the right, we have the, the new way, the autocracy, if you like, of the um, public service commissioner. And uh, some felt that maybe the, the efficiency elements of the reform were not uh, achieved to the extent that uh, might be hoped for. So I'd just like to quickly wrap up. I think everyone would agree that the public service was set on a new course. At a stroke in 1912 it had been cut away 
from its 19th century foundation, foundations in patronage and in patrician moral purity, as I've called it. It had been modernised in line with progressivist reforms and with scientific management philosophies that were um, obvious in other countries. The influence of Australia was notable, but in contrast to Australia, even the appointment of permanent heads was taken out of the political realm. The increase in the public service as a result of the liberal reforms had been recognised by a framework for the bureaucratic expansion of the state, and this expansion would continue throughout two world wars and beyond. The new framework was to bring issues with it. Combining political independence with efficiency and economy was a continued tension. How was the wish of various governments to ensure economy to be translated into the public service? And then more broadly, and returning back to Weber as a final comment, as Weber pointed out, bureaucracy was a technical instrument rather than a neutral force. It was did not necessarily embody the interests of society as a neutral force above competing interests. It had a tendency to exceed its function and become an interest in its own right. In a modern democracy, this is Weber's argument, politicians should subordinate the bureaucracy to the goals of a, of a democratic state. Now I just put that up there um, possibly for people to comment on as other presentations take place. I'm not suggesting I would agree with that. I'm just saying that, that from the position of, a, of a, a person writing about bureaucracy, a key figure such as Max Weber, who was writing about the Prussian bureaucracy of the day, and he was uh, signalling a few warnings about um, the, the kind of hopes that one might have for the 20th century and the place that a um, public service bureaucracy might take within it. And I'll finish on that note. Thank you very much. Thank you.